This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. And here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of September 12th, 2022, here are some top stories. Turnover in leadership is underway this week at the Phoenix Police Department. Outgoing Chief Jerry Williams is helping onboard her interim replacement, Michael Sullivan. He has the experience city officials wanted when they went looking for someone to guide Phoenix PD through a federal investigation that's now 13 months old. Matthew Casey reports. In 2020, police protesters were arrested in downtown Phoenix on what turned out to be bogus gang charges. It's a scandal that tainted the department and Maricopa County Attorney's Office, and a big reason why the group Mass Liberation Arizona got a brass band to help say goodbye to Chief Williams. This cover of a decades-old song by the boy band NSYNC hit on the theme of a midday news conference held Monday outside of PD headquarters that the activist group called Bye Bye Jerry. We are celebrating the win of removing Jerry Williams from office as a police chief. This is our victory. A civil rights investigation of Phoenix PD by the U.S. Justice Department continues, and the incoming chief wants to be collaborative with the feds. Williams actually oversaw numerous reforms as chief. Some came in response to, or were eclipsed by, public embarrassments. She noted the changes in an in-depth update on her department at the city council's latest policy meeting. There are over 90 policy changes, but I don't want to talk about 90. I just want to highlight the ones that we believe are most impactful to our community. Many of the PowerPoint slides made by staff were about accomplishments, such as rules for body cameras and requiring officers to tell their supervisor if they point a gun at someone. Uh, Are we perfect? No. Uh, Are we better than I think we used to be? Absolutely. Um, But we still have more work to do. Williams later told council member Carlos Garcia that he's always been good at bringing up issues that are top of mind for people who don't trust law enforcement. We have been open and transparent to sit and listen and to try to work through those things. Um, I would encourage you, sir, to continue to, to push us and stretch us in that direction. Garcia is the council's most outspoken critic of the police department, and on Tuesday he told Williams a culture shift is still needed. Garcia ended the meeting by thanking Williams. Seen you try. I've seen you work with community, been in community meetings, uh, particularly in South Phoenix. People know you, trust you, love you. Among those who saw these exchanges live in the city council chambers is the interim police chief, Michael Sullivan. He pledges to work hard daily to become a better agency. I I truly believe a reform is about becoming a self-assessing, self-correcting agency. Sullivan's top qualification was having led efforts to make the Baltimore Police Department compliant with court-enforceable reforms similar to what the feds could impose here. Phoenix hired him for $232,000 a year, plus benefits. Yeah, the key is collaboration. Uh, when, when you get to a point uh, that you're working hand-in-hand uh, with the Department of Justice, The first calls Sullivan says he made after accepting the job were to unions within Phoenix PD. He calls their buy-in critical for implementing reforms that could come from the Fed's sweeping review. 
change is not easy and uh, it, it's something that uh, police departments struggle with at times. For Sullivan, a culture change is not about history and traditions. He's excited to learn those of the Phoenix Police Department. But, you know, a culture of accountability, a culture of transparency, I think is critically important uh, to, to building trust. And, and that, that's a change that I'm going to be focused on. Phoenix plans to hire a permanent police chief after the feds finish their investigation, which could take another year. Sullivan says it's too early to talk about whether he will apply for the job. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Science News. Under what circumstances, if any, can abortions be performed in Arizona now that the U.S. Supreme Court has struck down Roe v. Wade? A Superior Court judge in Pima County next week is expected to give her opinion in a case that will answer that question. Katherine Davis-Young has more. There were no patients around when I visited Dr. Deshaun Taylor's Phoenix Family Planning Clinic on a recent Monday. Taylor says ever since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June, her office has been quiet. Each provider needed to make their own determinations around what level of risk they were willing to assume. There are just nine abortion clinics in Arizona. Many, like Taylor's, have paused or limited services over the last two and a half months. That's because it hasn't been totally clear what's legal in Arizona after Roe. At first, Taylor stopped all abortion services. She's since resumed medication abortions, but she hasn't been able to bring back enough staff to take on patients who need surgical abortions. To know that those people are going without care is particularly distressing to me. Those are the people who absolutely are having to leave the state. Taylor says she's frustrated. Our leaders are supposed to tell us what laws are in effect and how we are to comply. And that didn't happen. To understand the current confusion around abortion in Arizona, you have to go back to the 1860s. That's when the Arizona Territory's first legislative assembly met, and those pre-statehood lawmakers banned abortions, making exceptions only to save the life of the pregnant person. More than a century later, in the early 1970s, Planned Parenthood and several Arizona doctors sued over that ban. The state's courts upheld the territorial law. But just a few days later, the Supreme Court established a federal right to abortion in the case Roe v. Wade. So the Arizona judges vacated their decision and issued an injunction to block enforcement of the old ban. And it's still blocked, even though Roe has now been overturned. The state's Republican Attorney General Mark Burnovich now wants to enforce the ban. So he's asking courts to lift the injunction. But Sarah McDougall, an attorney for Planned Parenthood, says the court needs to weigh in on more than just the old law. If the court goes along with the AG's request and simply lifts the injunction wholesale without any clarification, there'll be this total ban, but then there's also all of these other laws and regulations, and it will be unclear how they all interact with one another. In the half century since Roe v. Wade, Arizona has made dozens of laws related to abortion. Just this year, the legislature passed a bill outlawing the procedure after 15 weeks gestation. And McDougall says those more recent laws suggest elected officials intended to allow abortions in the state, at least in some circumstances. The Arizona legislature could have had the territorial ban go back into effect if Dobbs were to overturn Roe, but they didn't. 
The attorney general's office declines to provide an interview for this story, but in court, attorney Bo Roysden with the AG's office argued the more recent laws were only written the way they were because Roe was still in place. Those laws were passed by the legislature because the Supreme Court said you are required to recognize a constitutional right to abortion. He said newer laws don't overturn the older one. There's nothing in their text that supports the conclusion they were intended to statutorily create a right to abortion. Judge Kelly Johnson is expected to give her opinion in the case early next week, and abortion will be further restricted in Arizona, whatever she decides. If she sides with the attorney general, the state would go back to its near-total ban. If she sides with Planned Parenthood, the state's new law banning abortion after 15 weeks will take effect September 24th. But Johnson probably won't have the final say. Either side would be likely to appeal a decision that wasn't in their favor. So the case could end up before an appeals court or after that, the mostly conservative Arizona Supreme Court. So for Arizona's abortion providers, the future is still uncertain. This moment is gonna have repercussions for generations to come. Taylor says the court case is only one concern for her. She's also thinking about what might happen in November's election or in the legislative session that begins in January, where lawmakers will no longer be bound by Roe. I'm quite sure that if we have the current people running the state to continue to run the state, it is their intention that abortion is completely illegal in this state. Like that interest has been made very clear. For now, she says she's just not booking appointments beyond this week. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news. An investigation of the owner of the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury has found that Robert Sarver repeatedly used a racial slur, treated women unequally, and bullied staff. But the results do not mean the NBA will strip Sarver of the franchise that Forbes magazine values at nearly $2 billion. Matthew Casey reports. Instead, the NBA has suspended Sarver for one year, fined him $10 million, and ordered him to do training on appropriate workplace behavior. The league will also monitor the Suns and Mercury organizations for three years to make sure benchmarks for workplace improvements are met. Sarver was accused last year of a pattern of racist, misogynistic, and hostile incidents in his nearly two decades as owner of the Suns. The review found that Sarver's behavior was not due to racial or gender-based hostility. The document describes Sarver's sense of humor as sophomoric and says he acted as if workplace norms did not apply to him. Matthew Casey, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news, the candidates for Arizona Superintendent of Public Instruction squared off in a debate Wednesday night. And as Bridget Dowd reports, one of the big points of contention is the use of public money for private school tuition. Incumbent Democrat Kathy Hoffman and Republican challenger Tom Horn butted heads on a number of issues, from school safety to critical race theory. Chief among them was the expansion of Arizona's school voucher program, which allows any student to get state funds to attend a private or parochial school. Hoffman argued the state's ESA program doesn't have enough oversight. She mentioned a private school that opened in Snowflake for children with autism, where all of the tuition was paid for with ESA vouchers. They made a lot of profit, and then without warning to any families, they shut down the school, leaving the families high and dry, seeking alternative education options for their kids with autism. Horn says the school voucher program acts as an equalizer. 
Rich people can send their kids to any school they want to. Poor people should have that ability as well. And the whole idea of the ESA program is to give the people who don't have as much money the ability to do the same thing that rich people do now. Debate moderators said initial data shows 75 percent of those who've applied for vouchers already have their child in a private school. Horn says if elected, he would work to make any necessary tweaks to the program. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ's original productions. A little-known oasis is just down the road from Arizona's Montezuma Castle. Here's the show co-host Lauren Gilger with a look. Most Arizonans have heard of Montezuma Castle. A quick drive up the I-17, the century-old cliff dwelling is one of our state's most famous tourist sites. But our next guest is here to tell us about a little-known oasis just down the road from Montezuma Castle, Montezuma Well. But this isn't just a well. It's a place that longtime Arizona travel writer Roger Naylor calls geologically, historically, and biologically remarkable. I spoke with him more about why, beginning with the better-known wonder that is Montezuma Castle. Most people know this, but it's not really a castle. Montezuma didn't build it, but it's still one of the best-preserved cliff dwellings and dramatic ones in the country. I mean, that's one of the reasons I love to take uh, out-of-town guests, out-of-state guests, to show it because you walk down this shady path and all of a sudden, boom, it's the very definition of a cliff dwelling, this uh, five-story, 20-room prehistoric high-rise tucked into an alcove 100 feet above the canyon floor. Mm. It just uh, is really great to see. Always spectacular. It was built by the Sanawa between 1100 and 1350. Uh, They occupied it by uh, 1425 about. They were gone. So uh, they lived there for a couple of centuries and then moved on. Uh, But yeah, uh, Montezuma Castle is just a, a spectacular place. And in fact, so spectacular, it was one of the first four national monuments in America. Wow, in America. And it goes back so long. The history is extensive, as you outlined there. And a lot of us have heard of that one. But next to it, you write about Montezuma Well, which is a little bit different. And I want to talk about some of the oddities in this today. First of all, just describe this for us. What does it look like? Where is it? Okay, well, Montezuma Well is the a detached unit of the Montezuma Castle National Monument. But it's uh, several miles away. It's it's upstream on Beaver Creek, the same creek that flows past Montezuma Castle. But by road, it's about 11 miles of driving. You go up uh, through McGuireville there. And uh, Montezuma, well, it's just as startling as the man-made wonder of the castle is the natural wonder of Montezuma Well. It looks like sort of a placid little pond that's uh, tucked into a crater, but is actually a limestone sinkhole formed by the collapse of an underground cavern. Wow. And subterranean springs replenish the well, pumping out 1.5 million gallons of water each day. And what? that's an amount that's been unvarying since prehistoric times. Yet the well doesn't overflow. It doesn't change because there's an opening that drains off the water like a bowl with a crack near the brim. Hmm. The water flows through a limestone cave where most of it ends up back in Beaver Creek, but some is channeled off by an ancient canal system built by the Sanawa. They use this to irrigate their crops, and you can still see their cliff dwellings there perched atop a sheltered ledge above the pond. Uh, And this canal system, so it's over a thousand years old, and you can still see part of it with the water flowing down. It is really remarkable. 
That is remarkable. Okay, so this has been around for so long. This is prehistoric in ways. And then there's intersections with cultures that have lived in this area since then. Now it's sort of a picnic area, right? Like a very pretty one, in fact. But I understand it changes quite a bit at night. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's really interesting because it it's such a peaceful oasis. It's such an amazing little quiet place. But at night, it becomes kind of interesting because Montezuma Well supports five endemic species. Mm. Those are ones that exist nowhere else in the world. And that's the most of any spring in the Southwest, probably the most of any spring in North America. Wow. <laughs> and so among these, uh, the five species are, let's see, there's a, a tiny little uh, spring snail, uh, a water scorpion, an amphipod, uh, a predatory leech, and a little single cell plant called a diatom. Huh. But among these, the, the three that engage in a life and death struggle each night are the uh, the amphipods are, they look kind of like a miniature little shrimp, little mm-hmm. side swimmers and stuff. They're sort of the the base of the, the food chain here. And they kind of uh, spend their day out in uh, deep water, deep enough to stay away from the water scorpions and the diving ducks. But then at night, they rise up to the surface to feed on microscopic algae. But mm. that's when also the night brings out these leeches that come up from the depths. And now these are not the, <laughs> the leeches that, you know, terrify us in movies and stuff. These are uh, not uh, blood-sucking leeches, <laughs> but they are hunting for meat. They're hunting for these little amphipods. And then the, the water scorpions come out from the edge and they're after the amphipods. And it's just this, you know, they have to go through this every night to try to survive. The, the little uh, amphipods try to stay very still or hide on plants to avoid being eaten and get through another day. And this it just goes on day after day after day. There are no fish in the pond because there's a little too much dissolved carbon dioxide. So mm-hmm. this it's sort of this unique ecosystem that's been created here that only exists in Montezuma Well. And it's just, there's so much history there, but so much scientific interest. And it's just a fascinating place. Yeah, so much history, so much interesting science and clearly scientific research that's gone into this place. You've got leeches, you've got scorpions in the water, and you've got these shrimp-like things. I mean, it sounds like something that's ripe for Halloween fodder here. It's a good time of year to talk about this. It is. And, you know, it always reminds me, especially around this time of the year, that it's always time to watch Attack of the Giant Leeches <laughs> on the television. It's a 1959 low-budget and unintentionally hilarious sci-fi film. I don't want to spoil it, but the leeches appear to be played by men in hefty trash bags with suckers glued on. <laughs> now, and if that's not enough to get you reaching for the popcorn, then you and I are very different people. <laughs> I'm going to have to check this out for sure. All right. That is Roger Naylor, Arizona travel writer. Thank you for coming on to tell us about this, Roger. It is truly a hidden wonder of the state. <laughs> it is my pleasure. And finally, in Fronteras News. A government watchdog report out this month finds that information technology systems run by the Department of Homeland Security failed to keep track of some migrants at the border in 2021. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick has more. The Office of Inspector General found breakdowns in the data input systems meant to keep tabs on migrants' whereabouts during apprehension, transfer, and release. Auditors found apprehension times not being consistently recorded 
and key data missing about family type, U.S. sponsors, and addresses where migrants were headed. As a result, the watchdog said family reunification could be delayed, and the time migrants spent in DHS custody could exceed the legal limit. The report also said without accurate data, DHS was less likely to be able to keep families together in appropriate facilities. Auditors recommended the agency bolster its IT systems and address problems identified. Elisa Resnick, KJZZ News, Tucson. And this has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thanks for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station. 